This is Talking Gardens. I'm Stephanie Mahan, editor of Gardens Illustrated, and in our special Chelsea episodes, I'm speaking with designers about the show gardens they're creating for the 2023 Chelsea Flower Show. This time, my guest is Tom Massey, who won gold and people's choice at the show in 2021 with the Yo Valley Organic Garden. For this year's show, he'll be creating a new design for the Royal Entomological Society. So, Tom, tell me about the theme or cause of your Chelsea show garden this year. Yeah, so the the garden is um, one of the Project Giving Back gardens. Uh, So Project Giving Back support good causes to exhibit show gardens at Chelsea. So my good cause is the Royal Entomological Society, uh, a bit of a mouthful, but essentially the study of insects. So the garden is all about insect science and how we as humans are really important to insects in the choices that we make, in the way that we maintain and manage our garden spaces, in the types of planting and materials that we include in our landscapes and in our gardens. So really it's going to be full of inspiration for for people to see how design choices and uh, the way in which we garden and grow can be beneficial to insects. Fantastic. And what was the brief that you were given by We'll call it the RES, the Royal Entomological Society, because as you say, it is a wonderful mouthful, but I don't know how many times I can say entomological correctly during this podcast. So maybe we'll just say RES. (laughs) RES is a good idea, I think. So RES, the the main brief really was to highlight the importance of essentially how we are really important to insects. And, you know, that ranges from being interested and engaged with with insect life so um, part of the garden has this monitor that connects to microscopes in, in this outdoor lab that allow insects to be displayed at, at really magnified scale. Because I think people often overlook insects. You know, they're, they're kind of, it's very easy to flick a fly off your arm or just to kind of ignore the things that are buzzing around or flying around, uh, you know, in our gardens. But really, when, when you look at them up close, they're incredibly fascinating creatures. And also they're, they're really accessible insects visit our gardens regularly uh, and we can encourage more insects into our gardens so for connection to nature for that connection with wildlife insects are a really valuable resource that that should be should be used so the brief really was to highlight the importance of insect science and to show as i've said you know how, how we as humans are really important to insects when visitors are coming to the show and they're standing in front of your completed garden, what are they going to see? What are the main sort of elements and features of your design? Yeah, so I, I guess the most sort of striking feature is going to be this outdoor lab. And the, the design of it is inspired by an insect eye. So it's this kind of uh, geodesic type structure created with lots of laser cut steel panels. And this will kind of represent an insect's eye in the centre of the garden, also providing a space for insects to be collected, identified, studied under microscopes, and then displayed, as I said, on this screen in the middle of the garden. So it's so shown at huge scale to, to members of the public visiting. Aside from that, there's going to be lots of different types of habitat creation. Uh, so that ranges from dead wood. There's going to be a, a whole tree cut into, uh, well, a, a dead tree essentially cut into sections and suspended on steel poles that will float over the planting. Uh, there'll be lots of panels filled with different types of material from crushed pots to construction waste to leaf mould, brushwood, all sorts of different types of habitat and topography because the garden is really inspired by the biodiversity found on brownfield sites in the UK. 
So these spaces have a kind of mosaic landscape, lots of different materials that have been left or abandoned and allowed biodiversity to really thrive. So that, yeah, the, the garden will have quite a, a raw feel to it, but will be softened by lots of different types of planting and areas of more wild types of planting and, and then some more kind of drought tolerant areas as well. So lot, lots to see and lots to think about. When you talk about brownfield sites, I suppose for listeners who aren't really familiar with that term, it might be worth explaining what you mean, because brownfield gardening is becoming such a hot topic at the moment. Yeah, so a a brownfield site is essentially a site that has once had human inhabitants that has been left. So generally for for some sort of trade or industry. So it could be a quarry that has been left and reclaimed by nature. It could be an old building site. It could be a kind of partially finished development that never quite got funding to be finished. So really they're, they're kind of left spaces that have had some sort of human use previously. And the reason that they're so good for biodiversity is the the range of different types of material, different types of topography, different types of plant species and and insect life that have inhabited these spaces once the humans have disappeared. And I believe that, you know, you've been consulting with or working with several people who are, are sort of known for this kind of brownfield site gardening or gardening on not what we would consider usual typical garden soil. Isn't that right? Yeah, so one practitioner who's been doing this for a long time is John Little, uh, and he runs a company called The Grass Roof Company. So I've been spending time with him in in his garden. He's a real, he's not a a trained entomologist, but he's really passionate about entomology and insect life. So he has done lots of surveys of his garden that he's created and has found incredible benefits and boosts to to the levels of biodiversity and entomology you know, insect life in his garden. So he's been he's been actively helping us come up with this concept and, and working with RES as well to develop this theme. I presume that when you're talking about creating, almost creating a brownfield site from scratch, uh, what are we going to see? Is there going to be sort of mounds of crushed rubble? You know, give us a sense of maybe if I was standing on Main Avenue looking at your garden, I know we're going to have this gorgeous insects eye inspired laboratory building structure. What else am I going to be seeing? Yeah, so you're you're going to be seeing lots of different types of uh, mulch, essentially. So there will be areas of bare sand, really good for things like ground nesting bees. There'll be um, piles of rubble. There'll be kind of large lumps of concrete instead of boulders. It's going to have quite a raw feel, but I think that will really be softened by the planting and by by this kind of look and feel of a site that's been reclaimed by nature. So I think that's going to be a challenge to try and replicate that, you know, that that happens naturally over many, many years. So to try and do that in, you know, the three weeks of the show is is going to be a challenge. But hopefully it will have, it will convey some of that feel, that kind of romanticism of those left spaces. And I think I I find them really interesting and, and really inspiring, those types of landscape. Apart from John Little's garden, did you go and find any particular places to roam and kind of observe, watch, consider any real brownfield sites that, that you spent time on? I'm, I'm actually off to uh, West Thurrock Marshes, which is a, a large area of, of brownfields with many different types of habitat. So I'm, I'm off there with an entomologist to do a bug hunt, essentially, to go and see what's, you know, what's living in these types of landscape and what exists there. 
and that will really help to inform the look and feel of the Chelsea garden. But whenever I see, you know, whenever I see a, a, a disused area or a piece of land that has that kind of wild left feel, I always try and go and have a look, you know, whether that's, you know, an old car park that has been broken up and you see things growing up between the cracks in the in the paving or a left uh, multi-storey car park that started to be reclaimed by nature. Now, I've, I find these types of spaces really interesting, that interaction between the built human environment and that degradation into, into a kind of more natural landscape. It, it's kind of, I, you know, I find them oddly positive in a way that, you know, even if we disappear... Uh, or if human life disappears, nature will find a way to reclaim the, the planet that we, you know, the state of the planet that we've left it. And and also, you know, very quickly when humans go, nature takes takes back those spaces and, and can reclaim it and have an incredible degree of biodiversity. So it's, you know, I, I see them as quite positive. I think a, a lot of people see these spaces as sort of negative, you know, wasted spaces. But really, you know, we should be championing and, and celebrating these spaces and taking influence from them in, in landscape design. You mentioned your planting earlier. What kind of things do you have in your palette? Who's growing your plants for you? So Hortus loci are growing the plants. I've, I've worked with them on all my other show gardens. So safe, safe pair of hands. They've done hundreds of show gardens to date. And the kinds of things we're going to have. So there's going to be a backbone of native plants. So things like silver birch can support up to 300 different types of insects. Hawthorn, again, supports, you know, hundreds of different types of insect species. We've got Scots pine. So kind of the, the tree the tree canopy layer will feel quite native, uh, quite typical of, of reclaimed land or, or brownfield sites. And then there'll be, uh, you know, a huge array of, of different types of plants from native things like digitalis and Echium vulgare, you know, kind of wildflower weed type things through to more unusual Mediterranean species, things that are very drought tolerant, like lots of different types of euphorbia or uh, Hesperolo parviflora, which is a kind of yucca-like sort of succulent. So it's going to have a very kind of mixed feel, kind of a backbone of native species with some more unusual, maybe more climate resilient non-natives mixed in. You mentioned that buzzword resilience. I know that your new book, RHS Resilient Garden, is going to be something that a lot of listeners are going to want on their bookshelves. But I think there's sometimes a little bit of confusion about what the difference is between all of this talk of sustainability, resilience, ecological planting, climate change planting. How do you see where resilience sits for people making gardens or for gardeners? I think you're completely right. You know, there's so many different words that seem to change with, you know, whatever's in, in fashion at, at the current time, whether it's rewilding or organic or uh, resilient or sustainable. You know, I think really they're all part of the same thing, part of the same bigger picture. And resilience is all about designing landscapes that are able to d deal with and respond to the effects of climate change. So if there was an extreme drought, for example, now, how would that landscape recover? Are there plants in, the, in that mix that would be able to tolerate that and would bounce back the next year? Or would everything just simply die and have to be replanted? So designing a landscape that's resilient is designing a landscape that can recover and can deal with the increasingly unpredictable and extreme weather that we're going to face. So also it's kind of looking to the future and, and considering that in the design. So maybe, you know, thinking London is going to be more similar to Barcelona in the next 20 to 30 years and what currently thrives in Barcelona, you know, what does well there. 
thinking about those species and, and starting to bring those into the palettes of plants that we use here in the UK. Are there plants that you love, that you worry, that you no, won't necessarily really be able to use in your practice anymore? Yeah, I mean, it's always it's always a worry and it's a shame. You know, I would love to have included an, an oak tree at Chelsea, but, you know, the, aside from the resilient factor, there's also pests and, and disease. Um, so, you know, oaks are now banned from the show because of the oak processionary moth which is a, a type of moth that has a caterpillar that has very harmful hairs if, if touched. You know, it can create really bad reactions on skin or with, with breathing. So they're really a real problem now in and around London. So it's, it's already, you know, already there are plants that are banned from the RHS shows because of the risk of, of bringing in an unknown pest. And I think that's going to also, you know, with climate change mixed in as well, we're going to see increasing numbers of unusual pests being able to survive in, in our climate. And so, yeah, I mean, oaks are, it's a shame already that they can't be used at Chelsea. And, and I'd really be very sad if they couldn't be used in our landscapes anymore, because, you know, if the climate changes in, in the way it's predicted to, we are going to lose many of our native species. But I, I suppose on, on the positive side, you know, vegetation is very resilient and very adaptable and things that aren't native will you know, probably manage to survive and, and we'll do better over here. So it would just be a changing landscape. And I guess in the times we're living in, we have to be able to adapt and accept that change is inevitable and celebrate it in a way, you know, design landscapes that celebrate that changing climate and are adaptable and able to deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've done quite a few Chelsea gardens now. I think this is your third Main Avenue garden. Third time right? at Chelsea, yeah. Third yeah. time at Chelsea, you know, and you've done them previously for the Lemon Tree Trust and for Yo Valley Organics. Is there a particular thing? Does it have to be a particular client or particular reason or cause that would attract you to the show? Yeah, I, I think um, I, I come from an art and design background. So concept driven design is really interesting to me. I, I studied as an animator. So I was, you know, making up stories and then creating imagery and, and animations to, to tell those stories. So for me, a show garden is a really good opportunity to be able to tell a story. So I think if I didn't resonate with the sponsor and there wasn't a clear message that we were trying to talk about, it would be less exciting and, and less meaningful in a way so I think with all the show gardens to date that I've done they've had quite a clear message or theme and have, have used plants and, and landscape to tell that story and again for me I think landscape is a really evocative medium you know plants are very sensory the smell of lavender for example always reminds me of family holidays in Cornwall you know just just that scent just takes me back there straight away so I think with, with show gardens, you know, you've got the capacity to tell a story through the medium of plants and planting and, and hard landscape features. And that is really exciting. So this, this particular brief about insects, you know, I remember as a young child just being fascinated by the kinds of insect life that were in my garden, you know, going out, hunting for bugs, setting, uh, you know, cutting a plastic bottle in half and setting a bug trap overnight, seeing what would arrive and then releasing it back into the garden trying to identify things, you know, I, I found that really interesting uh, and was a early connection to nature that still, you know, I, I still find really, really amazing when, when you plant up a garden and suddenly it's covered in bees or, you know, there's a infestation of aphids that can be annoying. It's still fascinating to see, you know, what, what they're doing and, and what might be eating them. 
So yeah, so this is, as I mentioned, supported by Project Giving Back, uh, which is an amazing organization set up to support charities after the pandemic. So it's uh, essentially a funding body to provide charities with the means in which to exhibit a garden at Chelsea, which allows them to really broadcast a message, uh, extend their reach and, uh, you know, connect with a, a new and potentially different audience through the means of horticulture. And another key thing with the Project Giving Back funding is that the, that the garden has to have a home after the show, which I think is really, really important now, particularly with, you know, the way the climate is changing and, and the kind of the way that we all need to be thinking along the terms of being more sustainable and more aware of the environment. So this, the, the RES garden is going to go to IQL in Stratford, which is a quite a high profile piece of public realm landscape in between the, the Westfield shopping centre and the Olympic Park, the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. So it's going to live on long term as a, an outdoor resource for RES to uh, host talks or run events or invite local school children to come in and do a bug hunt and also to provide a capacity for research and to see you know, these methods and techniques that we're including in the garden, how they can be uh, beneficial and, and proven to support insect life long term. So is it quite challenging then that you know that it's going to this very specific site uh, which is a public landscape, but also which is going to be used for insect study. The planting had to couldn't just be nice for Chelsea and also pay lip service to being good for insect life. It had to it has to actually really, really, really be good for insect life. How how was balancing has to look good for the show and has to actually be you know worthwhile and useful and functional? Yeah, I mean it's always a challenge and it's a, an increasing challenge with the you know with the added relocation aspect. Luckily, the relocation site is slightly bigger than the Chelsea Show Garden site. So there's capacity to bring in new types of plants and increase that plant palette. As you've sort of intimated, you know, for Chelsea, it has to be looking good in May. But that could be quite limiting, you know, for the whole season because, that you know, certain things that look good in the spring don't look so good, at, you know, as you move through into autumn and, uh, and midsummer. So there is capacity to extend the planting palette. But yes, yeah, I mean, it, I, I think, again, with a show garden and the RHS are, are really kind of adamant about this, that the planting schemes have to be realistic and have to be, you know, if you say it's good for biodiversity, that has to actually be good for biodiversity. You can't just be saying it, you know, you, you can, but you won't score well with the judges. The, the judging panels that have real horticultural experts, so they will really interrogate that scheme and will really look at it in detail and say, you know, you've said this and you've said it's going to do that, but it doesn't do that in reality. So I think with a show garden, it's always, I think what's really good about the RHS show gardens is that they are designed to inspire and to educate. So the RHS want people to be able to see that garden and to take, you know, the, a very similar or, or the same palette of plants and for it to perform well in their own garden. Yeah, you mentioned the judging. How are you feeling about doing something I suppose I know like last year's winner was obviously a, a rewilding landscape a beaver dam but I think you might be the first proper brownfield garden to to be a show garden how are you feeling your chances are I mean I've been told before that it's it's really a case of when you write your description and give all your information to the judges that it's about matching your own description more than it is about satisfying anything in particular that they're looking for because they're not allowed to have personal choice in the issue they're not allowed to say oh I just don't really like that they have to follow the rule book don't they so but it must be nerve-wracking to do something so different 
Yeah, I mean, I, I want to push it even further and have some nibbled leaves, you know, include some things like dandelions, things that, that people commonly perceive as of weeds, but are actually, you know, very beneficial to leave in the landscape for early nectar for pollinating insects. So I think it, there's always that risk that you might not quite convey that in the brief, the written brief, which you alluded to. And that written brief is very, very limited. You know, you've got kind of 20 to 30 or sort of 20 to 50 words per answer. So really trying to convey quite a complex theme and message in, in a very shorthand form is very difficult. And so hopefully the judges will respond well. And I think, you know, as, as you highlighted, gardens that have more of a landscape feel have started to do quite well at the show, not necessarily universally with other designers or members of the public, but, you know, have, have, have started to be well received by judging panels, which I think is a positive sign, you know, that, that they're not just looking for that perfection that maybe Chelsea was associated with 10, 15 years ago. So it's, it's always interesting, but I think in a way you've just got to put the judging out of your mind and just remember this is for a very important cause and for an important theme and it needs to be true to that first and foremost. And, and then, you know, if, if it does well in the medals, that's, that's good for me really, but for the, you know, for the charity and for the, for the message, it needs to really tick those boxes first and foremost. Is there anything in particular that's keeping you up at night, keeping you awake in terms of the build or any particular element of the garden that's being created? I think the, the lab itself is the most complex and intricate element, and that is just starting to go together now. So it's just starting to be bolted together and, and we're starting to test how that's going to look and feel. So I think once that goes up and, and we see that fully assembled off-site, you know, that's going to be a, a bit of a, a sigh of relief because, you know, if that didn't work, you know, the, the garden's not going to work. Aside from that, I mean, there's always the the kind of worry about the plants, you know, are the, are the things that you want going to be performing at the right time? I think with this particular garden, it's not really, you know, off, often gardens have one plant that's the star of the show that, you know, that it's all about this one plant. And if that doesn't bloom, then the whole thing is, you know, a letdown. But with this garden, it's really about biodiversity and that mix of different types of species. So in that way, that's that's much more freedom to experiment and to try things out. And, you know, we, you always grow more than you need and have more species than you need. And then you can experiment on site. And that's part of the fun of doing a show garden is that that unexpectedness, you know, what what might work, what maybe you think is going to work, doesn't work on site. And then you change things around. So, yeah, I mean, at, at this point, nothing too concerning, but it would be nice to get that lab up and tested uh, and then that'll be a you know a big big step forward do you tend to do mock-ups in a yard somewhere before you get to the show or you kind of fly by the seat of your pants no mock up whenever you can i think i've learned through experience that the more that you can mock things up the more you can know before you get to site the better you know the, the less you're trying to do things on site uh, and you know guessing the better but obviously you can't mock up everything, you know, you can't just, there's not budget to, to mock up a full show garden before the show. So there is always going to be some degree of experimentation on site. But yeah, I, we're, we're mocking up habitat panels, which are looking really good. So filling gabions with different types of material, uh, as I mentioned before, from leaf mould to crushed construction waste, broken pots, 
brushwood, logs, you know, all, all sorts of things are going into these gabion baskets. Gabions, if, if people don't know, uh, you often see them at kind of motorway verges. They're sort of wire mesh baskets that can contain material and are used for retaining generally. So that, that's all coming together nicely. That's, that's all looking really good. Uh, working with a landscaper called Landscape Associates, who actually built the rewilding Britain Garden uh, at the show last year and built both my previous uh, show gardens at Chelsea. So in, in a safe pair of hands there and there, they're really very willing to experiment and try things out and, and prefabricate before the show. Of course, for the RES, they're all about bugs and all about insect science. And I, I think all about, like you said, trying to make us appreciate insects, even things like aphids in our gardens a little bit more. Do you have a favourite insect or a few different insects that you sort of think, you, and, and you know, don't be like B, you know, come on, give us something a little bit different. Some interesting garden insects that you've, yeah, that you've, that you've learned about through your work with the RES that you're like, you know, people just don't know this about these bugs. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. You know, bees and butterflies are really the most popular insects by far. I think one interesting thing I've learned is actually the, the actual definition of an insect. So I think a lot of people think spiders might be insects or even slugs and snails might be insects. But in, insects have a very uh, defined set of kind of body shapes. So essentially they've got antennae, six uh, jointed legs, three parts of their body and two uh, compound eyes. Uh, so they are quite specific and, and lots of things that people might think of as insects, like millipedes or centipedes, you know, aren't actually insects. So that, that's been quite interesting finding out about that. Bug actually as well. Bug is actually a scientific term. I think it's, I um, can't remember for certain, but I think it's an insect with a piercing mouth part. So, you know, a bug is actually a type of, it's a sub subgenre of insect. Yeah, so it is, it's interesting, you know, where colloquial words come from, that they, they actually have some sort of scientific founding. But in terms of a favourite insect, I'd, I'd have to say probably a stag beetle. I just remember as a child, I, I grew up near Richmond Park and, and often, you know, dead wood would be left in the landscape. So I think it was one of the, the better habitats for stag beetles, which have been suffering massive decline uh, because I think, you know, we've been tidying our landscapes up, taking away all dead wood and just mulching it up into into wood chips but now there's a real change and a shift and, and dead wood you see a lot more in public parks in 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 public landscape so stag beetles are having a bit of a resurgence and i think um you know richmond park in particular is a is an area where they're they're doing very well but i i just remember you know they're they're amazing creatures seeing them flying around with their you know their kind of stag horn yeah they they just look really kind of alien in a way uh, and really interesting to see them I just remember as a child you know picking them up when you'd find them that they'd, they'd often be kind of crawling across the middle of the road to look like they'd needed saving picking them up and putting them you know in some vegetation to protect them so yeah I think that that would be my favorite insect and and what do you say to gardeners who you know it's only a couple of years since the RHS basically stopped calling things like slugs a pest. And I, I think uh, that would surprise some people who maybe haven't heard that yet, that uh, we now consider all of these creatures beneficial to gardeners, including wasps, including aphids, in different ways. It's a bit of a, a mind switch for gardeners to make, isn't it, to, to start to appreciate or try to learn to put up with things that until recently we were very happy putting down pellets and spraying to get rid of. 
Yeah, I, I think it's a real shift. And I think it's really, really good news that the RHS have, have taken that approach. It's still difficult. You know, I still catch myself when, I, when talking about slugs and, you know, trying to not call them a pest, particularly if they've just decimated a new planting scheme. But, you know, there are all sorts of ways in which to, to deal with, with, with these types of insects or garden creatures in, in a different way, you know, rather than just spraying or covering the garden in, in slug pellets. I, I think it's, it's kind of considering everything as part of a wider ecosystem. And that is really important. You know, we, we, if you decimate the population of one thing, that can have a knock-on effect and can, and can start to affect species that people consider more beneficial or more interesting to have in their gardens like mammals or birds so i think it's it's all about really looking at our gardens and our landscapes as part of this wider interconnected ecosystem and that you know that should extend to seeing our gardens as part of a larger area of green space that is really valuable you know gardens in the uk equate to roughly the size of wales which when you think about that in in context is huge you know if everyone just allowed an area of their garden to be a bit more wild, a bit more uh, loose, a bit less clipped, a bit less sprayed, you know, that, that could have a huge net effect on, on biodiversity in this country, which is, you know, is, is really in crisis. Yeah, indeed. And, and I think something else that people maybe don't realise is that this brownfield gardening that we're talking about, these brownfield sites, you would look at them and assume that they weren't hotbeds of activity, but they actually are amazing for biodiversity that's such a surprise yeah I, I mean when i read you know reading some of the stats that brownfield sites in the uk have a, the same level of biodiversity or a higher degree of biodiversity than areas of the amazon rainforest you know it's crazy to think about that but i suppose it's it's really because they are so diverse in terms of topography in terms of different types of habitat and that is really important, you know, a really easy thing to translate into a garden, you know, have an area of gravel, have some areas of sand, have different types of plants, have areas that are slightly more wild, areas that are slightly more exposed. And you can really do that in a small space. You know, that, that can be, you can bring all of those concepts and ideas into even a very small garden. I mean, there's this thing called garden grabbing, obviously, that um, there's sort of a, a move towards people getting planning permission and trying to build a semi-detached something or other in their garden. And brownfield sites is a designation, isn't it, for development. Do you think that we'll soon see protests as people start to realise the value of these kinds of what you might consider neglected or forgotten sites, that we'll start to see people saying, no, you can't build on this either? Yeah, no, I definitely do. And, and some brownfield sites are already designated, you know, areas of special scientific interest or nature reserves. So already, you know, people are seeing the value of these spaces and, and that they can be preserved for wildlife benefit and for biodiversity benefit rather than, you know, just to create another shopping mall or, a, you know, a depot for some sort of uh, transportation firm. So, yeah, I, I think these kinds of spaces are really important and hopefully the garden at Chelsea and, and you know, the message that RES is putting forward that, that we are important to insects, you know, and the way that we value these spaces and the way that we take interest in them. Hopefully that will, you know, be start to get people thinking about, you know, about landscapes and not just protecting the beautiful areas of national park or, or existing nature reserves, but also thinking about other types of space and other types of landscape and how they can be beneficial to, you know, species, well, insects that essentially are less visible and, and less, I suppose, attractive in inverted commas to many people, but are really fascinating and inspiring and 
amazing creatures if, if you take the time to to have a look at them. Yeah, there's this thing in conservation, isn't there, where, you know, you've got the cuddly panda and the majestic tiger, those big mammals that are so visible and are so easy to love and put on the television as a big ad that we all sort of think, oh, goodness, yes, I think I want to donate a pound to that cause. That sounds, looks wonderful. It doesn't quite work the same way with insects, does it? I mean, if you put them on a big screen, as I know you're planning to do it, Chelsea, it, it doesn't exactly inspire feelings of cuddly warmth in people, doesn't it? <laughs> it's um, it's going to be interesting to see how you get people to reconsider it, not necessarily just how important they are, but just to want to look at them. Because I think when you look at them really up close, it's quite fantastic structure to some of them and they can be really beautiful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, if you're a butterfly's wing or, uh, you know, the eye of a wasp or, um, you know, the mouth of an aphid, you know, all these things are like incredibly detailed, complex sort of system, biological systems, and have inspired a lot of science fiction. You know, insects have inspired many different aliens in many different types of science fiction film. So they are, they do look quite alien and, and quite kind of alarming in some ways, as, as you say. But I think that's part of the fascination of them. You know, they are very interesting and, and intricate animals and they are really you know amazing creatures that have all sorts of different functions so yeah I, I you know hopefully people will be fascinated and will want to know more and I think as I, I highlighted earlier you know, access to insects is that they are very accessible for, for children or for adults you know wanting to you know access wildlife insects are on literally on your doorstep you know everywhere but are in massive decline. There's that uh, saying, you know, when you used to drive around at night, uh, you'd, you'd kind of arrive in your windscreen and, you know, the front of your car would be splattered with insects. Now that's so minimal. You know, you hardly see any splatter on your, on your, on your car, which is quite frightening, really, you know, how fast insects are declining. And I think the other thing to highlight is that insects really do drive so many systems in the world, you know, from food through pollination, through, uh, you know, food sources for other types of um, wildlife. You know, they, they are just such an important part of our ecosystem that, that we literally can't let them disappear. And if we look back at Chelsea for a second. So, as we've said, you've done three. This will be your third Chelsea show garden. And I know you've done Hampton Court a couple of times as well. If somebody was thinking of applying to do a show garden next year for the RHS for one of the shows or specifically Chelsea, do you have any particular advice for them? Yeah, I, I think the first thing would be to really try and find a sponsor or, or design a garden with a theme that you really resonate with. I think you have to, there's the whole design aspect of it and, you know, the kind of technical challenge of designing a space for the show but there's also the kind of spokesperson side of it you know you are essentially a spokesperson and a mouthpiece for that sponsor and for that message and if it's not something that you resonate with or can talk passionately about or really believe in I think that that will come across and you won't enjoy it so I think really you know really think hard about if, if a sponsor approaches you or if you're approaching a sponsor, are they the right fit for you? You know, can you talk passionately? Do you really believe in, in their message or, or what they're trying to portray? Uh, and if you do, that's, that's a really good starting point. That was designer Tom Massey talking with me, Stephanie Mahon, about his Chelsea Garden for the Royal Entomological Society. You can find out lots more fascinating facts about garden insects in our exclusive online series, Small Stories, with Tom and the RES on our website, gardensillustrated.com. 
Thank you for listening and see you next time.